It's Friday, July 23rd, 2021. And from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is the Pennsylvania Legacies Podcast. I'm Josh Rollerson. During the pandemic, environmental organizations, like every business, had to get creative with our interactions and communications. For most of us, that meant virtual meetings, hybrid events, and lots more online content. 2020 was also the year many groups began to seriously reckon with questions of diversity, equity, and inclusion in their work. When COVID hit, Tukani Tacony Frankfurt Watershed Partnership in Philadelphia was already working on DEI goals, and the pivot to digital everything was a chance to try out some new ideas. We developed these uh, Bring Us Along, Trainos Contigo virtual tour series that's uh, both in English and Spanish. If you can't visit the park or you don't feel comfortable visiting the park, you can still feel like you're interacting with the space. Bilingual virtual watershed tours are just one of many ways the group is making inroads in the community, getting people involved in stewardship by meeting them where they are. We'll learn more about it after this news update from Lily Jones. Groups are calling on the Wolf Administration to strengthen a proposed regulation to reduce methane emissions from the oil and gas industry. The proposed rule currently exempts thousands of low-producing wells throughout Pennsylvania, which are responsible for emitting more than half a million tons of methane. Robert Ruth of the Clean Air Council says that because methane is such a potent greenhouse gas, effectively regulating it is an important part of addressing climate change. Methane worldwide is responsible for about a quarter of the man-made global warming that we are experiencing today. So cutting methane emissions is the quickest and the most cost-effective way that we can reduce uh, climate pollution now. Last month, the U.S. House of Representatives passed a bipartisan resolution limiting methane pollution. Patrice Tomchek with Moms Clean Air Force says that this is an opportunity for Pennsylvania to follow suit. This has really created an unparalleled moment when Pennsylvania has the opportunity to be a leader in methane pollution protections for the rest of the nation. In other climate policy news, the Environmental Quality Board voted last week to approve the final rulemaking to link Pennsylvania with a Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, or REGI. The EQB approved the plan 15 to 4. It will now be sent to the Independent Regulatory Review Commission for a potential vote later this year. Under the REGI program, emissions from fossil fuel-fired power plants are capped and plants can buy carbon allowances to comply with the program limits. Revenues would be used to further address climate change and assist communities and workers affected by the transition. For Pennsylvania Legacies, I'm Lily Jones. In many ways, the Tukani Tacony Frankfurt watershed is a cross section of Greater Philadelphia encompassing a wide swath of suburban Montgomery County, as well as neighborhoods within the city proper, it's home to a diverse population that's increasingly engaged in conservation and outdoor recreation activities organized by the Tukani Tacony Frankfurt Watershed Partnership, or TTF. That engagement is due in large part to the efforts of community organizer Susan Sunhee Volz and Dorian De Angel, TTF's community watershed leader. Dorian, Susan, welcome to Pennsylvania Legacies. We're so glad you could join us. Likewise. One thing I know about Tukani Tacony Frankfurt Watershed Partnership is that you guys at at the level of mission are very focused on 
people and communities, as maybe as much as you are on the creeks and the watershed itself. Could you talk a little bit about the benefits of that approach generally? Why does it make sense to tackle local watershed issues on like a community-wide footing? Um, sure, I could start. So one of the things that we feel is uh, is helpful in encouraging stewardship, like our, our biggest mission is to connect our communities within our watershed uh, to their green spaces and specifically to their creek, to their water, to their river. And um, the best way to do that is by working together with the community that lives in it. And uh, we've learned that, you know, the best way to foster uh, an appreciation for our environment, our environment and um, nature is by directly interacting with it. So um, it's not so much that we, we know that, you know, we want to improve the health of this creek. And that's a big ask for just one person. So uh, just creating that, that awareness and understanding like this is what we need to do together. And this is why it's important for me. This is uh, why it's important for everyone. Like how could we work together? So it's, it's through uh, creating that understanding of um, working this mission uh, together as a community. Well, I mean, it strikes me there's something special about just the, the idea of a watershed as a, you know, a grouping, as, as, a, as a, a format for a community, if that makes sense, where people tend to sort demographically for all kinds of reasons and historical reasons, right? But if we all kind of share a watershed, right, we all have the same water, it drains to the same place, that's a way of identifying, you know, a social unit, maybe. Is that present in, in how you think about the work? Are you are you trying to kind of do community organizing per se? What I what I thought of when you mentioned that is like, I know that one of the challenges that we had, because our watershed is 30 square miles, but you know, there's a reason why Susan and I and Alex, like we're, we're kind of separated in teams. So we're part of the Philadelphia team where the watershed is in the Philadelphia section. And the other part of our watershed is in Montgomery County, like the areas in Cheltenham, Jenkintown, Abington. One of the challenges, one of the things that we've been working to do is to how to bridge that gap. Because it also highlighting that awareness, it is one watershed. And that's one of the things that we noticed, like when we would do, you know, we focus a lot in the Tacona Creek Park section, which is the only part within the Philadelphia section of our watershed where you can see the creek visibly still at the surface. Uh, so that's one of the main connections is like all the other or uh, neighborhoods outside of Tacona Park, like come and visit this part. And many times we, um, we would notice how even within the Philadelphia section of the neighborhoods around Tacona Creek Park, a lot of neighborhoods below the Roosevelt Boulevard would, wouldn't really visit the same park above the north of the Roosevelt Boulevard. Um, so if that was happening just within the Tocono Creek Park uh, area, the same thing happens with you know, residents from Montgomery County that are part of the same watershed. Uh, don't always think of visiting Tocono Creek Park in the Philadelphia section. Um, so incorporating that in our work of like, how can we change that and have it be, it's all one watershed. And, and this is how the creeks and streams look in Montgomery County and how could we uh, do cross programs. And that's why we've done a lot of the tours and, you know, how also thinking like um, wanting to engage and ask the community of, of even for the Tacoma Park, why don't you visit? 
mm-hmm. north of the boulevard. Uh, what is preventing? What are some of the barriers preventing that? And um, how could, and through that lens, how could we then work together to break down some of those barriers and then transfer them over to, with that same uh, thought process for the communities in Montgomery County to bring them down to, to Coney Creek Park and vice versa? It might be helpful uh, for in case anybody doesn't know the area as well to kind of uh, can you give me like an overview of the geography of of the watershed? You mentioned some of the neighborhoods it encompasses, but can you just kind of give me like the the span of all the places where you guys do work? Uh, who lives there and how does that inform the, the way you engage with with residents? You know, uh, Tacony Creek Park, it starts as the Tocony Creek up in um, Montgomery County and flows into Philly and the neighborhoods. Um, then Tacony Creek Park is a 3.2 mile trail that um, goes through um, neighborhoods in the lower Northeast. So Lawncrest, Alney, Frankfurt, um, Juniata, you know, these neighborhoods are some of the, you know, they're some of the most ethnically diverse neighborhoods in the city. It's a lot of immigrant communities, um, working family communities, communities that um, speak English as a second language. Some of the more poor sections of the city, which is already a poor city, um, and parts of the city that generally don't get a whole lot of resources and attention from, you know, the powers that be. <laughs> which is why you know we think community engagement is so important, is because these communities are usually, you know, under resourced and not really paid attention to, and so making them feel heard and feel like they have a way to engage, you know, with the park that's a part of their community. And it's another reason why talking about the watershed is a helpful entity because not everyone who lives in the watershed, especially in Philly, lives near the creek, you know, but your activity in your neighborhood still impacts the health of the creek, which you know, then impacts the broader watershed. So I think that's important too. I think TTF Partnership has a reputation increasingly as being really proactive and out front on particularly on DEI work. And as I said, I think at some level, that's kind of in your DNA as an organization anyway, uh, just with the approach to community engagement that you take. But you've been specifically focusing on diversity and, and, and inclusion and equity for the last couple of years. I mean, arguably kind of before it was cool and de rigueur <laughs> these last uh, year or so. But I guess I'm interested in what prompted you as an organization to take a closer look at diversity and inclusion as it relates to your existing mission and philosophy. Um, you know, what, what did you notice? What problems were you trying to address? And, you know, and how have the programming and the practices evolved in response to that? Yeah, so I've been with TTF for the past seven years. And uh, one of the things that um, Julie Slavid communicated before I was uh, employed with the organization was that they, they had started to have flyers uh, in Spanish to promote certain events like summer block parties. And um, I remember I was told that the community, you know, residents would, would then reach out and call and they would be talking in Spanish, asking questions about that event. And that was one thing, oh, well, you know, it, it just uh, puts into perspective that if you're gonna be putting out information, messaging in Spanish, you're gonna need to have someone on staff, someone to be able to respond when the community starts to reply uh, when you're reaching out. And so that's one of the things that um, 
I, I helped with when I came on board because I'm originally born and raised in Puerto Rico. And so when I got more involved with the, uh, even before uh, being employed with TTF, I was a volunteer, you know, the, the communities and the areas around within TTF watershed and around Zekonofi Park, uh, there's, it's very culturally diverse. A lot of uh, Latinx communities, um, not just from Puerto Rico, but from South America, Central America. And it's uh, uh, beautiful to see that uh, large diversity and culture, cultural backgrounds. And I remember my very first um, time doing the, the first block parties into Coney Creek Park, I was speaking Spanish a lot, <laughs> which was great because it's like, wow, this is wonderful. So to be able to engage in, and it's just seeing, you know, the, the, the importance of being able, you know, we have an important message and mission to communicate. And um, if we want everyone to be able to get involved and participate, having that representation and being the mentor, being the leader, doing and helping to activate the space also helped to, for other residents in the area to also want to be part of it. And that kind of really uh, set the, the momentum of like, because that's another thing, like during that block party, we have all these materials to hand out. You know, that's one thing we, everything we do is for free. And we have, uh, you know, we started having a bird guide and we have brochures. And so when engaging with a lot of these families that wouldn't speak English and all materials are all in English, it was like, oh, well, we have these items, but unfortunately they're in English. So it wasn't as helpful. So it was after that point, we realized, okay, we need to start translating a lot more of our material in English and Spanish. So that way um, we're all aware of the goings-on in, in the community. And that now we have a lot of material. You know, we have the English and Spanish bird guides, uh, our, our monthly newsletters, at least the monthly newsletters for Tukurnaki Park, uh, they are translated in English and Spanish. Uh, the flyers as well, two-sided English and Spanish. And um, that has made a, a huge impact. And um, from doing this, you know, a few years, it's, it's wonderful to see uh, the relationships that you build. And that's, I think, another important thing, you know, consistency when community comes out and they, they see familiar faces from the organization and staff. And, and that's one thing we wanted to do. Like we do all these programs and we do see some participants that we may not have, they came once, we don't see them again, but we really wanted to build a community, a sense of family. And, uh, you know, through regular programming, um, that we would have, we wanted to know, like, we was like okay, this is going to happen same time, same location here. And we'll do that for like a month or so. So, so that would build on the, that relationship. It was like, okay, we'll be there. And then seeing familiar faces and, and seeing the interactions between neighbors and they would talk amongst themselves like, oh, you live here too. I've lived here for 15 years. And so from that, um, we would, you know, keep track of those that were regulars. And, and those are the ones that then we would reach out to further down to help uh, start a friends group of the Dakota Creek Park, which there wasn't one for a while. So it was through those programmings and those uh, consistent interactions with uh, neighbors that we then say, hey, how would you feel being part of a, a friends group? Can we get that started and get those conversations? And, and now we have uh, an active friends group for the past now it's going to be four years. 
well. So we're really, really, really happy about that. And of course, there are some members of the group that have come and gone. Life happens, you know, but there has still been. It's great to see, you know, some help started and they have uh, moved on. But then it also you see some uh, new members come in and they are full of ideas and they want to help. And, you know, it's it's just about continuing that conversation of like, okay, this is this is our green space. This is your park. What do you envision? This is what we've done. What would you like to do next? You know, so we really try to um, have that open door of communication because we may have ideas of like, oh, you know, one example was like, we started with bird walks in the park. And uh, after doing that for a bit, we had, we heard from the community saying, oh, you know what? I'm not really into birds, but I love history. And that sparked then further communications of like, okay, let's start a history walk. And uh, so it's, we don't always want to assume what the community wants to do or how they engage and interact with nature. You know, that's still something we're still learning and we want to improve. You know, we don't know what's the best day, what's the best time to do certain things. So it's important to also hear uh, and get feedback from the community so, so that we're always learning from them. How can we best represent the community? Well, then when you start asking those questions and getting answers and, and responding to them, right, you can kind of tell that you're on to something. As you said, like now there's interest. Now it's kind of snowballing on its own. I think a lot of other organizations like yours, like ours, uh, watershed groups, trail groups are really struggling with this question of succession. And how do we get, you know, fresh blood into this organization? How do we cultivate support in the community beyond the people that have been with us for decades who are aging out? Right. And this seems like a really fruitful avenue to pursue, I think, purely just on that on that term of how do you keep your organization relevant going forward. I want to go back to what you were saying about the bilingual printed materials and you know the media that you produce, which right away, that's, that's huge. You're already light years ahead of, of a lot of us in that respect. But you also made a really interesting and I think important point about how it's one thing to, to take that step, like you could hire somebody or, I don't know, Google Translate, whatever, you could automate it somehow and say, there, we, we have bilingual materials. It's a whole other thing to be able to, like, back it up when those phone calls do start coming in. You have to be able to walk the walk. So and what, is that, what does that actually mean in terms of in, investing resources in the organization toward those goals? Does it mean you need a bilingual person on staff, at least one or more? I would say, yes, it's you know, it is a good start, you know, to have the materials translated. And even with Google Translate, that is something that I sometimes would reference it, but it's many times I see that, oh no, this is, it's not perfect. It's not perfect, (laughs) you know, and I've had like, oh, can you double, can you proofread this? And I I would read it and I'm like, this makes no sense. (laughs) So, so word of caution too, even with uh, those uh, Google Translate programs, they, they are helpful though. But yes, in it is important to be able to have um, staff volunteer that, you know, that is bilingual, that is able to uh, communicate. Like the example that was happening, you know, b- before I was on board of TTF is, is the community would, will reach out and they will ask questions and you need to be able to have someone to relay that message. And also, well, if, if I was to call someone and I, I'm interacting with someone that also speaks my language, that encourages a feeling of inclusion. It's a very uh, inviting feeling, and uh, it also helps foster future participation and engagement between the community, the neighborhood, and the organization. I love it sometimes when the phone would ring and 
they would be speaking Spanish and they, they, they know to ask for me sometimes, oh, <laughs> is Dorian there? And it's wonderful to, you know, that level of connection that can be fostered when you have, when you can build those relationships within the community and uh, a bilingual staff. That's one of those things that's so easily overlooked, but it really has to be happening kind of at every level. It has to really be baked into to everything you do. You know, you, you said in order to make people feel welcome, feel included, feel like they're in a, a safe and welcoming space. Can we apply that concept to the work that you all do in Taconi Creek Park and, you know, green spaces generally? How do we make them feel safe and welcoming for everybody? And, you know, especially now over this last year that there are so many more people using parks and trails. How are you welcoming those new users and meeting everybody kind of where they're at? I know that uh, this is a, a conversation that's been happening just you know, across the board, across different organizations. And again, for what we've been doing, you know, all our programs are always, always free. You know, we don't, we don't charge anybody. So we want to always maintain that level of uh, accessibility and remove that barrier. That's one way that we want to, to foster inclusion and welcoming environment. The other thing is, um, making sure to have someone there that could speak the language, if, at least if they speak Spanish, having someone there present that could act as an interpreter. That has been helpful too. We did that with the, we've been doing that with the bird walks. We're actually, if I can jump in, yeah. we, we're lucky to be starting a master plan for Taconi Creek Park, which is very exciting. Um, and its focus is community engagement and, you know, why do you or do you not use the park? So you know, it's going to be answering a lot of these questions of like, what would you like to see in the park that would make it more welcoming to you? What feels unsafe about it that is keeping you from coming to the park already? Um, so we're having these conversations, which is very cool. And a lot of it is just lack of information. Like, you'd be surprised how many people we talk to who don't realize there's a creek and a trail right there and you know they don't realize that they can walk on this trail that goes through a very beautiful park. We've been talking a lot in terms of linguistic diversity I guess and and, and accommodating non-English speakers or, or English as a second language speakers and I think that that's really the virtue of a small local kind of grassrootsy organization like TTF and that you can be really kind of micro attentive and micro responsive to what's actually going on in the community. But every community is a little different. It's not always Spanish speakers that you have to accommodate. And in fact, it's not always about language either. Uh, a lot of this comes down to questions of access and accessibility defined various different ways. But like from where you guys said, what what are the challenges or you know the the opportunities maybe that come with them? when it comes to accommodating community members who may have a disability or some other barrier to access, in addition to that, if I can just tack one more <laughs> question onto that, because I'm specifically interested in how you all have used multimedia and you know digital technology and the internet to try and meet those challenges. Um, accessibility is a really big issue. You know, a lot of the trail, especially older parts of it, isn't ADA compliant and not even the trail itself, but getting to the trail, we've talked to people, you know, we have, we don't have a facility, we don't have an environmental center. So all of our programming is some kind of walk usually. And we'll talk to people who will say, you know, I don't drive and the buses aren't super reliable. So it's a half hour walk to the park. So why would I walk to go to a walk kind of thing? That's something we've run into. And we're hoping again with the master plan to be able to point this out 
you know, there's these access issues and parts of the trail aren't necessarily welcoming if you, you know, if you're not physically able to walk a trail, you know, like everyone else during COVID, our programming went virtual. So it's been cool to have our keeper meetings on Zoom and different programming. We created the virtual tour that maybe Dorian can talk about because she worked a lot on that. Yeah, that, that was a first for us, but it was fun to do too. I mean, and it was all thankfully to a grant through the Alliance for Watershed Education that they provided resources for organizations to be able to pivot and um, do a virtual program. So that was one of the things we had to really think about of like, well, we do a lot of programs at the park on site where we, like Susan mentioned, we don't have an, an educational center. So we aim to go to where the people are as much as possible. So we wanted to do a different approach of, um, well, we can't do programs in person, and but we still want to engage with the community and encourage them to walk outside and explore the park and connect with the creek. And we developed these uh, Bring Us Along, Trainos Contigo, virtual tour series that's uh, both in English and Spanish. It's a story map and it has both photo contents and video contents. And it features different elements uh, and they're all seasonal too. So there were once a month, we did a June all the way through October. We would highlight uh, a site within the TTF watershed. And this was great because it, it allowed for us to not just do a tour of like we did a tour of Tacona Peak Park and we would say, okay, if you can't, if you can't visit the park or you don't feel comfortable visiting the park, you can still feel like you're interacting with the space and then you could read the, the content, see the photos and see what the park looked like in June and July and, and May and June, I'm sorry, May and June for Tacona Peak Park. Beyond that, you know, for the following months, we said, okay, now you can take a tour if you haven't explored other parts of our TTF watershed. Let's visit Ethel Jordan Park, where we have a, a stream restoration site there. And there's a rain garden. And we would define certain terms of like, what is a rain garden? What is a watershed? Where in the geographical area of our watershed is this located? And would you be, uh, we would invite them, encourage them to visit it. And so it's a way of broadening um, spaces that they may not have known about. And we also did uh, Vernon Park, uh, that's in Germantown, that's also located within our watershed. And we also did uh, Abington Friends School. So we have those five episodes, the first two are to Cornfield Park. And when we first did them, first we have a, a huge appreciation for video production. That is not easy. <laughs> No. Um, it took a lot longer than we expected and, you know, it was really uh, making sure, it, and of course, Brendan McCracken, he was the one that was featured in the videos and we would then read the material, make sure the language was inclusive and not too technical and complicated, complicated, make sure it was uh, reader friendly. Um, so we really had to read through a lot of that content and, um, and did that both for the English and the Spanish, but the viewership afterwards has been incredible for both the English and Spanish. And it really also highlighted the, the versatility of this, of what we would call a template that we feel that many organizations should do because it, it, like even now um, we're still promoting it. Like even though we did them last year, now it, it, throughout the summer, we're like, it's summer, you know, we explored Tacona Creek Park. 
here's the virtual tour, take the tour, go explore it, see if you can, and also act like a scavenger hunt, see if you can find these same items that we found at this during this time of the year. And also trying to uh, word it as like share, we want to be able to have more engagement and interaction with those. Like we want to you know, be able to see and hear from the community. Like, did you take this tour? What did you see? Share your photos, tag us. And also sharing them with schools as a way of like, how can they take some of that content and, and share it in a classroom setting? So there is a lot of uh, different approaches and, and methods of application for this, for these virtual tours. And we are interested in, in continuing this. Uh, you know, we, we see now kind of like how much work it takes and what's needed, but we would love to have uh, uh, another seasonal video and, and see what other areas in the watershed that we can explore. So that was that was wonderful. Well, it's such a great example of something that came out of the pandemic in some sense, but because of the approach you took and the, the sort of the forward thinking approach, this is something that's going to serve your organization, your community for many years to come, and you'll be able to build on it and iterate and continue developing it. And you've got this resource now that checks so many different boxes. It's it's a way for people to visit who can't maybe get there physically or to so, sort of scout it out in order to decide whether they want to get there physically. And at the same time, it's it's a resource that people who are at the park physically can use to have a, a more enriched experience. And it all, I don't know how much of that was anticipated and planned out ahead or how much just kind of worked out serendipitously. But I'm just curious if you see other opportunities to do things like that, you know, in the future. We do want to be able to explore other avenues of, um, of like what other tours can we do? Um, we are currently working on one, you know, of because um, we have a certain number of restoration sites that we did highlight at the virtual tour. But how could we then have more of a, a, a brief preview of those sites uh, as a story map feature? So it did open that avenue of other other possibilities. One thing we did try, but we did, haven't really done is that I know that other organizations have done a lot of the hybrid programming where they're at a site and they're doing the program, but they also have a live function or feature that we haven't really explored yet. We may, we, we just have to see, I know we've learned that there are some things you have to really keep in mind in, in terms of, you know, technical issues that could occur, like making sure you have a good, strong internet signal outside because for those that are present outside, it, they're getting all the different sensory uh, experiences here, you know, hearing sound. It's really, that's one thing we, we did notice is it's really difficult to translate that through a uh, two-dimensional feedback of a video. So I think that's one of the reasons why we haven't really done the hybrid because it, it really takes a lot more thought to, re, to be able to have that level of experiential learning and, and how to have the audience from the video feel like they're outside in the field, you know? So we may see how we could do something like that. Um, but yeah, it, it just takes a bit of thought. We don't want to have any either party, party feel left out. That, that makes sense. You know, the last thing you want to do is end up creating barriers. Right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. You were talking a little bit about how as a result of all the work that you're doing in DEI and, and adjacent areas, this is leading to more visibility, more engagement for TTF 
Um, I mean, presumably bringing more people into your events, getting more people on your your mailing list. Um, and because I know that you are an organization that works really closely with volunteers and relies a lot on volunteers for, for some of the work you do, I'm wondering how that translates. How do you how do you advance diversity and inclusion among your membership and support base? Or does that just kind of happen organically? I think it kind of happens organically because, you know, we meet volunteers at events. And so because, we, you know, we have events in the park, um, people usually live nearby and, you know, they want to get involved. And I think the keepers and like our core volunteers are, you know, very reflective of the neighborhood. And, you know, some of our most dedicated volunteers live within blocks of the park. I'd have to agree with that too, because again, because of um, a lot of the program, at least for Tokoki Park, like we we want to make sure that as much of the local community participates and as much of the community that they know about it. Like like Susan said, like we will canvas and leave flyers door to door, um, and it's through you know once they for those that participate when and they attend and and trying to have a, a consistent uh, level of, of programming. Uh, and now that's what we were really been um, aiming to do. One of the things that during the pandemic, like we couldn't have a lot of programs, but we still continued uh, some to some degree level of cleanups. Cleanups were a relatively safe activity to have where you were given the materials and then you would go and, and focus on a certain area of the park or trail. So that was an activity that could be done safely. We were also giving out free cleanup kits because someone in the community said, hey, I would love to clean up, you know, while I'm walking on the street. So that's another thing we did during the pandemic is we created cleanup kits in a reusable bag and gave them a trash grabber or gloves. And we were just like, if you want one, contact us. And they contacted us. We gave out over 60 cleanup kits. And uh, that's another way of keeping contact with the residents. So we would engage with them afterwards and try to say, do you need more bags? Do you need more gloves for your family? Tell us about that experience. How many, you know, trash bags did you collect? So even though we weren't meeting regularly, uh, the community wanted to help and be involved because as they interact and when they learned that, okay, this is, this is my part, this is part of my community. How can I help improve the watershed, improve our, our streets, improve our neighborhoods? And so we would say, okay, well, you're helping with this. And would you like to be involved in the friends group of the Tacoma Creek Park Keepers? And then whenever we would have a, uh, an event, we would reach out to them. Can you help us at this event? You know, we need help uh, tabling. And, you know, we also, for the summer block parties that we had in June, we reached out to a lot of the neighbors, residents, and it's like, we'll, we'll be here. Can you come and join us and uh, help with sign-in? So it's being able to provide opportunities where they can, where they can stay involved and they keep participating. Yeah. You, you make that initial contact and then now there's a connection. Now there's a line of communication and you just keep it open. You just keep building on that. I, this is, this has been really interesting. I think maybe helpful for anybody that might be listening. Who's, you know, in a similar situation, looking beyond your organization and your watershed specifically and thinking about challenges that other organizations like yours, like ours, people doing conservation work, environmental education, outdoor recreation, whatever, and trying to grapple with diversity and inclusion and, and really incorporate it into their work in a meaningful way. What other sort of challenges need to be met broadly within this field as a whole? What, where should the focus be? It's developing those relationships. You know, it's uh, understanding who lives in your watershed, yeah. 
Yeah. That would be the first step because if you, you, you know, if you want to invite and um, have an inclusive welcoming uh, space, you need to know who are you including, who's going to be in- included in those spaces. And then by knowing who is there, then you get to delve deeper into understanding the culture. And that would be then be meeting, you know, getting, getting to know the different uh, community-based organizations that are at that level already and try to establish a two-way communication. And for us, by understanding all the different cultures and uh, demographics that are in our watershed, that's when we say, okay, well, we have a lot of, you know, Asian communities, Latino communities, and, you know, there's also a a lot of large African-American community. We understand that right now, because I speak Spanish, a lot of it is so far, you know, centered on uh, English Spanish material, but we also understand that we need to start developing relationships with uh, the Cambodian uh, communities, and it's starting to then learn. Okay, w- what are the different Cambodian community groups that we have? Who are the leading uh, members that are taking active role in the community? Let's meet with that person, and it's starting to develop those relationships, and then you start to have a ripple effect. But you first need to understand who's in your area first. Yeah, I agree with that because, yeah, you have to understand who's in your area and then look at who is coming or not coming to your park, you know, and then is it, you know, is it an accessibility issue? Is it, you know, language? Is it maybe people work and can't come to a thing at, I don't know, three in the afternoon or something, (laughs) you know? Yeah, as the community organizer, I'm going to stress relationship building is just like making those connections and just being a presence. Um, I think also, frankly, hire people from the community. You know, the environmental movement is very white and environmentalists of color were all over, you know, so hire people. Well, I realize it may be unfair to ask this to you guys because you are already so far down this road and it may seem remedial, but for a lot of us, we are just starting out, honestly. It's like, what is the first step? I mean, is it simply an investment in shoe leather and getting out there and knocking on doors and meeting people? Do you take a more like, uh, you know, scientific approach? Do you do do like audience research? How do you get that really strong granular sense and then go from there? We really do go canvas and walk down the street and knock doors near the park. And it kind of really is talking to people. And so when we have cleanups and stuff like that, we'll set up a table on the trail. And so while people are cleaning up, we're also talking to people as they walk by. And something as simple as like, hey, do you you have a map of the park? You know, like, do you know where you're going? That was the definitive approach that we did uh, in terms of just being out on the ground and, and, and talking to people. And they would share their stories. And then from those stories, then we then realized, okay, how can we shed more of a light on on a lot of the rich history from the the neighborhoods that we have here? And then we partnered with Only Culture Lab and we collected oral histories. And now we have, uh, we're working on a booklet that's going to print a lot of those stories that, that were collected by interviewing some of the residents. So it's, these opportunities that spark from those interactions after programs and 
Another thing I also want to mention is that we did eventually, after a, a few years, we had a, a general idea of the demographics in our in our area because you would we would look you look at the map and you look and see well what are the what are the businesses that are are in some of the main business corridors, and uh, we see there's a lot of either Vietnamese or a lot of you know a- Asian restaurants or uh, Latino restaurants, and so that gave us an idea of some of the demographics in the area, and so. We then got a community profile through some grant funding. You know, we, we hired, uh, we worked with a organization. They helped us develop a community profile, demographic community profile of our watershed. And they looked into the census data. We wanted to see what was the, the demographics uh, at a certain point, what is it now? And so we have a whole report now that shows us the first Yes, first, second, you know, spoken languages, and and that really helped confirm a lot of what we knew already, but also shed light on some other things that we didn't know. So that's a useful tool that we would recommend uh, organizations to do. Dorian, Susan, this has been fascinating. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for being on Pennsylvania Legacies. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. You can learn all about Tukani Tukoni Frankfurt Watershed Partnership and their work in diversity and inclusion at their website, ttfwatershed.org. That's where you can also find the virtual watershed tours we talked about in this interview. We will include links in the episode description for this podcast at pecpa.org. That is the website of the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, where you can catch up on past episodes of this podcast. You can also find out more about our work in energy and climate, outdoor recreation, communities and landscapes, watersheds, of course, and much more. Again, pecpa.org is the website. On Twitter, we're at P-E-C-P-A. Look for us on Facebook and Instagram, too. And be sure to join us for the next edition of Pennsylvania Legacies. The podcast releases every other week. And I hope you can join us for the next one. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.